0: Hey everybody, it's Operation Tango Romeo, the place where healing happens. If you'd like to support this show, remember, like, comment, subscribe, and share, share like the sugar bear, because sharing is caring. And we're live. We're rolling on another edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Thrilled today uh, to have a brother on, a brother, Patricia, and somebody that you may have heard of. A few years ago, uh, you probably heard about the world record sniper shot. The world record was broken yet again by a Canadian, again, and that's Dallas. Dallas. More recently, you may have uh, heard him on the Sean Ryan show, uh, which was a pretty serious episode because that show, that episode ended up getting taken down at the request of JTF2. For those that don't know, JTF2 is Canada's elite tier one unit. Yes, we have one of those. It's pretty high speed, low drag. It's kind of like Delta Force in the States, give or take. And that show was pulled off the air at the request of the government A bunch of editing was done and negotiating and then was published again, so all kinds of controversy about that. Dallas, thanks for being here, brother.
1: Thanks for having me. It is so cool. Uh,
0: I wanted to start with uh, growing up on a Métis settlement. I I think not too many people know the difference between a Métis settlement and a First Nations Reserve. I was hoping you could start there.
1: Uh, Yeah, I I enjoyed it. Uh, Most of my life was spent outdoors, (laughs) and now, as an adult, uh, I long for that, (laughs) so I try to get back out to nature as much as possible. Um, They're similar. There's, like, you know, a reserve is, you know, without getting into the technicalities of all the agreements and land and blah, 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 and treaties. Um, It's just they're both indigenous communities. Uh, Métis settlement is is, uh, (laughs) half-breeds. Fucking <laughs> trouble for that. That's me. <laughs> well, fuck you. Hey, uh, hey, I didn't um, say
0: it, so I'm good.
1: <laughs> yeah, and uh, and it's like it's treaty Indian and half breeds essentially. I haven't googled the political correct terms, but I don't really care. Um, yeah, they're just two indigenous communities, and uh, it's most are or the settlement anyway. It was a mix of kind of, uh, indigenous tradition um, and and religion like there's a there's a church which was kind of in a lot of ways kind of the core of the community um you go to church on sunday and then you, you do your community thing so it's they're just two indigenous communities um in a lot of ways they look and feel the same way
0: <laughs> so what about culture i know that many i mean they're not all the same. Uh, I spent some time on a first nations reserve, not too far from where you were uh, to bury a friend of mine who I used to look after. He was a first nations feller and he passed away actually because of the COVID shot. Uh, It killed him. And I used to look after him because he's a, a special needs fella. And I worked at a respite home for about three years and he was a great friend. So, when he was killed by the clot shot, I, um, well that, that sucked, but he, like, he was only in his mid fifties and, um, I was both me and my oldest son, we were welcomed to the res like family. Like it was, it was a really good experience for us both. And we, it was a two day ceremony. Um, and we buried him like literally like used the shovel and <laughs> backfilled the hole by hand uh, it was a sort of a community thing it was it was it was powerful but on a lot of the reses um, there is a lot of despair um, from substance abuse and crime and, and everything else is there a different feel is there is it is it different on um, at least the metis settlement that you grew up on? Uh, i
1: think all of the the different communities I've been to, whether it be a reservation or a Métis settlement have some of that, but I've never been to a community anywhere in the world that doesn't. Sure. Um, it's just, I think it's a higher percentage, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's a, it's a a large piece of land generally with a small population. And if you go per capita, the problems are, are a lot worse than other places. Um, so there's definitely, we we have that, yeah, in Fishing Lake, for sure. Growing up, uh, drugs and alcohol and crime, and still to this day, drugs and alcohol and crime.
0: Yeah. But the beauty of the traditions of that which is sacred, because as a whole, society doesn't do a whole lot of uh, keeping things sacred anymore, you know, mm-hmm. um, and there certainly isn't ceremony, is... Uh, is sacred and spirituality and ceremony, is that still form a part of your life?
1: Um, Like I said, it was always a mix. So we would have some of that and then have church, I guess. Um, But I mean today, like, is it still part of your your life today? Yeah, definitely. And almost more, not in, it depends what you mean, I guess. So for me, it's something I'm learning a lot more about now that I'm an adult. Um, when I was a kid growing up, I didn't really care. You know, we, you'd have stories and you would have, you know, sweat lodge and powwow and they were gatherings and they were things. But I didn't, I didn't really care that much about what the, the tradition was or what the point of it was, you know? Um, and now that I'm an adult, I'm like oh wow that was powerful <laughs> you know and I'm super blessed to have had it in my in my upbringing and I'm a lot more interested in it now yeah so it's, it's something I'm continually learning about but I'm I'm a pretty like spiritually connected to nature dude anyway and whether that's from my roots or not like I just do a bunch of weird shit <laughs> If you were to watch, like when it rains, like I run outside and like try and go in the woods, just like have no shoes on and Sarah makes fun of me. But like, there's just a lot of ways where I I feel the best just connected to nature. Um, And I I aim to do that. So now I'm trying to learn, you know, from the the parts of my culture, what the the stories are behind this or or teachings and, and things like that. So it's definitely as I age. Um, I become a lot more interested in it.
0: I'm the same way, Dallas. If I don't have nature, if I don't have forest, uh, I'm a cranky guy. I'm not doing well. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, we're saying off air that I'm building a house right now. We're out at uh, Buffalo Lake. So close to Gord Bamford. I don't know where (laughs) he is out here. He's, he's pretty close. So I got 40 acres on one side of me. A, uh, A lake is a short walk away and I'm surrounded by forest you know it's uh that's what that's what this guy needs.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think that's what everybody needs just people don't realize they need it.
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Um, joining the forces. Now you when you joined you had the high flute idea of right from day 1 of you wanted to get into JTF2. Now um, <laughs> That's yeah. what a lot of people say when they join, but very few actually get there. It's uh it's a pretty fugly road. <laughs> it's not exactly easy just to qualify, much less yeah. uh make selection. But let's start um uh in back in my day, there was ten weeks of of basic at Cornwallis and then sixteen weeks of battle school at Wainwright. Um but that that has really changed a lot over the years. What year did you uh did you sign up?
1: Uh, I would have done my basic at the end of 2005 mm-hmm. and then the soldier qualifying stuff in 2006. So, so it was talking- like just between 05 and 06. So I was like St. Jean and Wayne, Okay. So
0: how long was basic? Yeah. St. Jean
1: basic was 12 weeks. I remember there being like, you get like the week one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, whatever. Mm-hmm. Applets or something. Uh, although it was a long time ago, many concussions ago. I don't remember exactly. I think it was about 12.
0: <laughs> and how about battle school? How long was that and where was it?
1: Uh, that was all the the soldier and the, inf- and the. I think there was like an infantry specific, whatever it was called, were both done in Wainwright. Um, okay. The timelines, I don't remember. There was a little bit of Pat platoon and not much for me, thankfully. Most, I got really lucky like that I got there, went on course, like a two-day turnaround, and next course where there was guys waiting months and months and months just living on the base in Wainwright waiting for courses. Um, but I don't remember the times. It was, I don't know, another couple months probably. Battle school
0: must up. must have changed a lot over the years. I'm curious about your battle school experience because when, when I went through in 91, let me tell you, <laughs> it was an ass-kicker. Like it was I, a yeah. grind,
1: I'm, man. I think we were, it was where, so like, like you said, when I, when I joined, I just, I, from day one, the only reason I went to the recruiting center is because I wanted to go to JTF two. Um, so I was kind of prepping for that, not so much for basic training. So I was, and I just finished playing junior hockey. Um, like I was an athlete my whole life. So I, I was in, you know, okay shape. So I didn't. I found basic more annoying than hard. Um, and then the the SQ and the infantry stuff, the sleep deprivation, the long miles, the yeah. heavy rocks. It was tough for sure. Um, but I was like so. I was like, okay, if it's this hard here, it's probably ten times harder. <laughs> <DM2>. <laughs> so I was just like, I was so focused that I, I didn't find it too too crazy. Now I think the level of meanness has changed. I don't think they're allowed to be as mean as they were. Um, <laughs> I talked to some people going through and there's like, I don't know, like safety cards and stuff. And I was like, well, what? that would have been nice. Like you can like, oh yeah, I, I'm not feeling comfortable here. You know, just, I've only heard rumors, so I don't actually know what it is.
0: Oh, so I, I would have thought for sure that, uh, uh, the, the little yellow cards or whatever, uh, were available in your time. Cause I, I started hearing mm. those stories. I went through the very last traditional course. It was the last one. And then uh, uh, it was also the smallest course that uh, has ever gone through in the history of that battle school. We graduated oh, wow. with five guys. So oh, shit. we had as many instructors as we did guys started with 18 graduated with five, but well, uh, if we
1: were allowed those cards, no one told us, <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, maybe it's just an urban myth. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe it still is. I've only just heard rumors also. Like I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I just know that they were, they were assholes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and a get out of jail free card or get out of je- getting jacked up free card would have been
1: handy. Yeah, that would have been handy a couple of times. I would have wanted a whole deck of them, though, like 52.
0: So you got posted to the third, um, as did I, after battle school. Uh, mine was in Victoria, though, so it was the old school third. So oh, did that you, would have it, it, it was sweet. <laughs> it was sweet. Uh, did you have any choice, though? Um, did they tell you, do you want the first, third or second?
1: Uh, they, the only choice. well, we had, uh, like an option box or something. I remember them putting it out. Uh, but then that was promptly ignored. So there was guys were like, Oh, I really need to go to Edmonton," And they're like, they go to Shiloh or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I already owned a house in Edmonton. So because of the logistics and probably money, they would save on a move. They just put me in 3 VP, which was good because that's where I wanted to go anyway.
0: Well, either um, the first or the third. They're both in Edmonton. So uh, did they give you the choice between the third and the first?
1: Uh, I chose, yeah, I chose the third because I wanted to go to the light infantry. Um, and it just put me there. I think there was like...
0: So they don't con- they don't consider the first uh, light anymore or is, is the first mechanized then now?
1: Mechanized, yeah.
0: Oh, it used to be second was the mechanized one.
1: Uh, first and second, or when I was there, were mechanized.
0: Yeah, it, it changes. It changes. So, um, what is the third battalion when you were there? Uh, it, it's. Uh, did they have a jump company?
1: Yeah, there was a jump company, um, a recce platoon that had the sniper debt, and I say that because in the in that order, that's where I wanted to go. <laughs> since yeah. I got there and realized that's what they had, um, it was it was interesting because. I went to Bravo Company um, and they had just got back from uh, a deployment or a series of deployments and it sounded like they were pretty tough and there was a bunch of guys that were getting out. So it wasn't too, you know, I'd heard a bunch of horror stories about like how you're going to get uh, welcomed. Um, it just, it was. I mean, you had to stand your ground a little bit, but it was it was pretty welcoming for the most part. Yeah. Um, there wasn't a ton of hazing and craziness because there's so many people leaving and so many guys coming in, um, that it was just like, look, we we need good soldiers, so let's let's train together and stuff. It was it was a pretty like I really enjoyed. I was there from 2006 to 2008 when I did selection, and I enjoyed my time at 3VP a lot. So you took your
0: um, first recce, then sniper course at, at the third?
1: Well, when I got there, I was raring to go. Yeah. Uh, so I immediately told my chain of command I wanted to do my jump course and to be on recce course in order to get to snipers. And like, okay, slow That is
0: a hell of a lot in, in two years, like a uh, ton.
1: Yeah, it was, I just, again, there was a lot of guys leaving and I annoyed them just enough that my name stayed <laughs> top of their mind i guess so i did the the trenton jump school and then i went on recce uh it started so they do like a selection for it first um which was at the end of 06 and recce course started uh january of 07 And then immediately after that, I went on my sniper course.
0: So for our audience that doesn't know, recce is reconnaissance. In the States, recon. And uh, now, was recce the toughest course that you ever took as far as bag drive factor? I
1: think it's still, even after JCF2 selection and assaulter course, the 3VP recce course was the hardest shit I've ever done. (laughs) (laughs) What,
0: What was it that made it hard? Was it mostly the sleep deprivation?
1: It was a collection of everything. It was it was sleep deprivation. It was the weight that we were carrying. It was the miles we were going. It was the fucking intensity of the instructors. All of it. It was just like it was the hardest course I'd done in my my career for sure.
0: So uh, let's talk about selection. <laughs> Pretty interesting story about how you, you first heard that, uh, that that you'd been selected. If we can get, get into that, the, the moment oh, that you were finally told because you gave somebody yeah. a nudge. Like, yeah.
1: hello. Yeah, it was our, our sergeant major at the time. And, like, other guys I had gone to selection with, you know, they got their message and they were told. And it was, like, you know, this cool experience. And I think we were, I, I think we were out at PT is what it was. But anyway, I went to him and I'm like, is there do you have anything to tell me kind of thing and then you know he's just like a crusty dude he's a little <laughs> bit angry sometimes but he is like oh yeah you got your message excuse me <laughs> uh, night. Um yeah so it was it was funny you know true 3vp uh, sergeant major nature <laughs> well just, he was probably a little bit jealous because he
0: never went to selection you know there's a bit of that
1: I think there was some of that there, but for the most part, it was, even from, like, you know, chain of command up, most most guys were pretty happy for us. There was a few of us that got picked up at the same time. Um, and the, for the most part, it was, like, guys are happy and excited. Because you're a light infantry battalion, like, almost everyone has, like, some dream of going to JTF2, you know, so... Yeah. It was pretty well-received, maybe, except for that one, Sergeant (laughs) Major.
0: Well, it's funny, too. Um, People that should be nothing but proud of their career, there's a a form, I wouldn't quite call it stolen valor, but uh, I'll call it uh, delusional, where I've heard it's like, yeah, well, I could have gone to JTF, too, but, uh, but... Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure you've run into those guys a few times. Guys that served us. Oh, yeah, I could have done that, but I decided not to because.
1: Yeah. As if like, you
0: could just decide to do it and you just do it
1: as if it's yeah, that easy. That's a, that's a bit of a ego defense mechanism, <laughs> which is, just takes a little bit more meditation maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it's uh, you don't know until – you you arrive, you know, and and you actually graduate and you and you finish, like you don't know yeah. until you're part of the unit. There's there's no way to know if you're gonna make it. That's uh,
1: yeah, totally. I didn't even think I was gonna make it half the time. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, that's what got me through. Is God, I I don't want to get recoursed, <laughs> yeah. and I didn't believe it till I got posted. It's like, oh mm-hmm. shit, I made it! Holy cow, did think mm-hmm. I was gonna? <laughs> it's a tough go. Um, Let's talk tours. How many tours in total did you end up doing?
1: Uh, longer tours, I did. I think I did four, four or five. One in Afghanistan, at least three. Three and maybe a short one in Iraq. What so the
0: hell are we doing in Iraq anyway? Because it's only seesaw and JTF that goes to Iraq. Uh, nobody else mm-hmm. seems to go. Why is true?
1: That? Well, other than like some Air Force support like we had yeah but,
0: but no grunts like no no the only fighters that we have is our best fighters that go to iraq
1: yeah so the all the tours that i was there we were supporting the fight against isis so mm-hmm. it started the first first tour and at least the first half of the second tour i think was mostly with the kurds um and then we, we kind of pushed into like true iraq depending on how you look at Iraq and how it's split up, uh, pushed towards Mosul with uh, the Iraqis. And it was an attempt to get ISIS out of Mosul, which was like their kind of last big stronghold.
0: So um, your three tours of Iraq, was it always, um, what was the scope for you? Was it always as a, as a sniper or did you um, fill other yeah. shoes?
1: No, from my, well, I was a sniper on all three tours, but we did kind of a lot of everything. So there's, um,
0: Were you breaching as
1: well? Uh, no, I was a breacher briefly in two, like in the squadron when I got there. So I'm trying to think we, we kind of did the scope was, sorry, there's just a a piece of this I have to be careful about.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know. Please do. Um, I don't want to get that phone call. uh,
1: There was a lot... Well, it's that I'm not concerned about, but like actual operational security. Uh, Yeah, yeah, so most of it was as as a sniper. So there was a lot of like on a kind of a front line with the Kurds or or Iraqis uh, sniping, watching, and airstrikes. And then we were doing some targeting um, where essentially I just became uh, an assaulter in the stack. Um, But most of the time... Even those ones would be more of a sniper overwatch type of thing in the city. Um, and then just some other some other tasks, I guess. So <laughs> I what's
0: know. the difference between being an assaulter and being a breacher?
1: Uh, well, breachers are assaulters. so like in the assault squadron, there's a person that will be the go-to for breaching.
0: So when we're saying breaching we're we, we just that's the, the act of the door kicking.
1: Uh, hard well, no, if, it's, if it's just a door to kick every assaulter, if it's just a door to open or kick every assaulter, does that? Uh, the breach is like, okay, this door is not opening no matter what we do. Now we got to blow it open. Oh, okay. Or we need a shotgun, or we're gonna go through this wall or this roof or whatever it is. That's where, like, because everyone's trained as a breacher, and even explosive, like the whole stack, you can roll, and we just need a charge. Any assaulter will put a charge on the door, blow it up, and go in the room. It's like when it gets to the next level, the breacher is the one going into that mission, prepared to blow shit up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a good way to get in, get through a wall, blow a hole in it. That's uh, and and that's. I don't know if that level of training is even found in the infantry battalions. Like, do do guys in the third? Are there breachers in, in the infantry battalions, or is that just a special forces thing?
1: Uh, from my experience, no. Like, you can have mechanical breaching. You know, I don't even think, 3VP, I don't recall there even being shotguns for breaching. It would be like, you you know, you can use bigger tools and stuff. Um, but you don't get to you know, blow things up as much. I didn't ever see any explosive breaching entries. no. No, I, I certainly never saw it. Would
0: have been cool, though.
1: Hell yeah. I can't <laughs> speak to what they're doing now. I have no idea, but well, at least the, the couple of years that I was there, I didn't there was no door explosions, which would have been awesome. <laughs> All
0: right. Let's talk about the shot. That's, was that on tour number two in Iraq?
1: That was my 2017. Yeah. It would have been my second tour in Iraq.
0: All right. So second tour in Iraq, you're doing overwatch. You're up on what? The fourth floor.
1: Uh, no, like the ninth floor, We're at the uh, right at the top of this big, uh, hotel shell of a hotel we'll call it but hotel um so we had good elevation like a sniper would like
0: sorry i thought thought you're gonna keep going there i was reading the comments that were coming in
1: we're on on the ninth floor we're on the top floor of the hotel actually this hotel
0: hotel. (laughs) all right and what was uh most of the because you had made the commitment. You know, I'm going to get the world record on this.
1: Well, I, yeah, I it was our our team. So we went down to Texas to train before going overseas, which we we did often. An amazing place, one of the best in the world, called Accuracy First. Um, and while we were down there, we were shooting. And now I'd I'd been to Iraq, and I kind of had an idea of what what it was like. And when we were shooting and the ranges we were starting to get, I told our team and our sergeant major and everybody down. and I was like, I promise you on this tour, we're going to break the world record. And at that time, it's like, ha, ha, ha. We finished the day and we have a beer and it's a laugh. <laughs> um, but when we got over there, there was this uh, big hotel structure right on the river. Um, and immediately, like I was our two, so it was a four-man dead. I was a two IC And our deck commander was like, that is where we need to get to. And it was still a bit of a, there's not like, we weren't really pushed to that level. Like it was, no one was really there yet other than there's some Iraqis that were, had I think taken one of the lower floors. Um, But it was like his goal once we got on the ground and it it took a a couple months for, for him to kind of, for all of us to massage how we were going to push that plan and, and, get it approved and all this stuff. But eventually we got into that hotel and the top floor and we were in there as an OP. Um, I think by the end of the tour is like 50 some days total, but we would go in for like a week, pull out, go back to camp or do other tasks and then come back. We were looking to support an Iraqi push through Mosul and we were kind of elevated and perpendicular to it. So, we were just it would be like, Oh, they're going, they're they're starting now. So we'd go back to the OP, do the whole thing, get in, watch, and be like a week, week and a half, like nothing's happening. Okay, we'd pull off and go do other things and then oh it's gonna happen and we go. So there's a bunch of like ready to go, oh nothing. Oh, here we go, oh, nothing. <laughs> but what it gave us was a lot of time to look and learn and study the ground. So we knew, you know, every building, the ranges to everything, all this stuff with the wind patterns were all like there's just Gather give us so much time to gather information.
0: So do you have all like um every building is labeled or like do you have like a, a map like this is building one, two, three, four, and you have the laser range to, to each one?
1: Yeah, that's right. So as a, a shooter spotter team, you would just so that because I've said this before and I think one of the things that makes a sniper team as efficient or deadly as possible is slick communication. Because, like, any person with a good gun and good ammo and good optics and a not super challenging wind, let's say, can be a good shooter. Like, you just keep it consistent. You know, it's that part is easy to learn. The stuff that I think doesn't get practiced enough is the communication between shooter and spotter. So you can imagine if I see movement in a window in some building in a city and then I stumble my words forever trying to tell you where it is as a spotter, he has gone. Yeah. Right. But if I'm like, even if it's just a nickname for something, like blue building, floor four, east window. I'm on, here's your dope, wind call, send it. Like it's, it can be so fast. Whereas if we're, oh, wait, no, don't you see this thing? Notice it, wait, there's a car. <laughs> yeah, go up, follow, two buildings over. Instead of that, you just you cut all that and make it really slick. So us being able to sit there and observe the city for so long, we kind of learned everything and I would laser range to, nearest things and like you have all the, all the dope ready to go. So if you needed it, it was, it was quick.
0: Now, when, uh, the record shot actually happened, uh, if I recall correctly, you're not sure who, who actually got that kill. It right. could have been, could, could have been you could have been, uh, another shooter.
1: Well, it was, so it was four man sniper team in the same, like it was our debt in the same large room. So um, you're Okay. Yeah, so there's there's two shooter like two shooters, two spotters. Um, and we were six or eight feet apart kind of thing.
0: Like, That's a lot of concussion.
1: Back a little bit, yeah, 50 counts. Jesus. Um, but the, the fight had started, and we were we were watching the Iraqi push, and we were seeing ISIS, and we were supporting uh, with sniper fire. Like, you would see ISIS firing onto the Iraqis, and we'd, we'd shoot, and there was a couple rounds were like, Oh, it was like a close, it's like 10 second flight time and shit like close. And a buddy shot one and it, it ricocheted off the route on the ground and hit a guy in the leg. And he went down and it was like the other, other team. And we're like, Holy shit. You just like hit a dude at like 35, 3600 meters, whatever it was. Um, and as that fight continued, uh, there was a a bunch of them ran into this building and we tried to call an airstrike and it was, it was like a dud. And so out the back window, this guy started lowering his gear, lowered his gun and he came down and that's when, cause I was spotting on this team Our TL was spotting on the other team. I just gave a quick call and the send it to like my shooter and he did the same thing. So simultaneously, like it's like two, two shots go in 10 seconds later the guy gets hit and falls. Um, so we just don't know. (laughs) All right. We got a team kill. Um, yeah, we tried to dissect the video a million times. We're like, we're like for us, it was like, wow, that was our shot. And they're like, wow, that was our shot. As
0: part of your training, are you, are you able to, or were you analyzing other previous record shots? Like, uh, is it Rob or Mark Furlong? Rob, Robin. Ah, uh, Rob. Yeah. Rob. Uh, so shots like that, um, that that made records. Is that part? Was that part of the the training of? Well, when this guy did it,
1: not really. Uh, we we had a really good sniper program, and we were making shots further than that record, like pretty consistently. Now it just wasn't that a bad guy. Yeah. So in training, and we were trying to push beyond, you know, and, and see what we could be doing with the capability of the, the weapon system. Um, and it was such a unique place to be working with the group of guys in that debt, but also just like in the whole sniper sniper group. Cause everyone was so focused, like so hungry to just get better at every part of what we were doing. Um, it was it was amazing. So like, there wasn't a lot of, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe somebody did like an analysis of the stuff, but like we were we were just aimed at pushing and pushing and pushing. Well, after
0: you, they have to change the PAMS on maximum effective range. It's like, we're well, in- we <laughs> thought the maximum effective range was this, yeah. but uh, not no more.
1: <laughs> yeah, this team proved that was wrong. Yeah, yeah, no, it, and it was cool to see how like how consistent that round and gun could stay at that range. Like that was, so it was two shots. Now it was the first shot at that target for both of us. Like just outside the variance is like, so for people that don't know, you could have a a gun like, you know, screwed in bolted in whatever clamped in, the exact same inputs everywhere, the exact same wind call, and just the variance in how the powder burns, like round to round to round, you get a feet per second, you know, that's most of the time above 10 feet per second. And what that means is, like, the difference in how that burns at that range, it's it's huge. It's like it can be meters when all other factors are the same. So I, I found that part very interesting as, like, when I was nerding out on ballistics that like, holy shit, this is so consistent. Um, even with all of these crazy factors going in.
0: Friends of mine used to get match grade ammo when they were on the, on the uh, rifle teams, like on the, on the shooting teams. And, uh, so th- that ammo would be made specifically for them. Now, i I'm imagining you're not grabbing uh, 50 cal rounds out of the box. Uh, for, for well, it depends.
1: sometimes like we try to use match grade as much as possible. Um, but I actually think those were U.S. rounds we were using that were like out of a box.
0: <laughs> is that right? So they weren't even custom made. I would well, have, made I, I would have guessed so that they, they were custom were made for you guys.
1: No, they were made for the fifty cal sniper rifle. Okay, um, like what we weren't like delinking fifty machine gun ammo at this point. It's the, it's this
0: it's the same cartridge though, isn't it? Yeah, same cartridge. Just <laughs> one one is rough and the other one isn't.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's a little more sniper specific, I guess.
0: We got all kinds of questions here that keep popping up. And I, I apologize to the audience. I can't uh, ask all the questions that keep popping up. Um, they're asking if um, the the cartridges that you were getting were um, were loaded hot compared to...
1: Uh, what do they mean by cartridge and what do they mean by loaded hot?
0: Well, uh Typically, like when you're when you're hand loading, just a little extra powder or or um, or a different type of powder, so it gets you more FPS.
1: Okay, well, these are like I said, they were I can't remember the exact round. It was uh, an American-made 50 cal round. It was it's for the sniper rifle, so like we were not specifically adding anything to it. We didn't yeah. hand hand make these rounds. Um, and there's still a
0: full metal jacket bullet then.
1: It was a little different,
0: <laughs> sorry, you can't don't tell me if you if you can't. it's all right. doesn't matter um, now, despite all of your service and all of the money that was pumped into all the training that you did, I mean, I don't know what it costs to put somebody through battle school, just that, but it ain't cheap, you know, just yeah. firing the Carl Gustav rounds or. I don't know, yeah, between 20 and 50 grand a piece or something like that. And I fired plenty. Yeah. Um, but for mm-hmm. you, the the amount of like the manpower, the rounds, oh my dearly God, do you have any sort of uh, rough idea or do people talk about um, what it costs to get you as a, um, to put you through all the JTF training?
1: Yeah, there's a bunch of numbers I've heard. I don't know which, which are true, but, like, it depends on what you do. So, like, in my career, I, I did, like, our our mountaineering and climbing course. Cool. And then taught on that. And then, like, our backcountry kind of mountain travel and alpine stuff with, like, cross-backcountry skiing and stuff. And then like our dive course as like, an assault swimmer. Uh, and then the surveillance stuff, which is a whole different crazy world. And then, like, sniper – and, like, so, and then all of the assaulter stuff on top of that with the other courses hey ho and free fall and all that so if I were to try and calculate that I have no fucking idea
0: there's a couple and and mil anyway
1: for sure and yeah. everyone that gets a government contract charges way too much also <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. who knows how much money is spent
0: yeah uh, but uh, millions of dollars uh, into, into each assaulter I mean uh, every, every one of you uh, the And the rarity of it. I mean, there's so few people that have the parts to make it through the training and to keep going. I mean, that's such a teeny weeny little community, you know, Um, really, really rare. So the the value to the military that uh, you were when you were in uniform is massive and almost impossible to replace. And yet you weren't treated like that
1: yeah yeah the exit was a little strange
0: <laughs> well there's some, have you ever heard the term sanctuary trauma say that again sanctuary trauma are you familiar with that term no it's something a lot of soldiers uh deal with i, I certainly did because of my tour so as an example myself as an example roto 4 in croatia uh, wasn't the bombs and the bullets and the horrendous things that were going on that was really the problem Um, it was how we were treated by our own people. And it was one of those famous or infamous tours because the leadership was just horrendous. And we were treated absolutely hideously by our own people, needlessly, for no reason. Like here we are in a freaking war zone and the things we're worried about is ourselves, not, uh, not, um, not the bad guys. And because it's where you go, where the place that uh, you should be safe, the place that should have your back sticks a knife in it. And that's what happened to you. The place that the people that should have your back, they didn't. Yeah. Despite everything that you've accomplished in your career, which is like, and if it can happen to a Dallas Alexander, if you can be treated like, all this investment, both money and, and, and emotionally uh, into you to get you to this level of training. We don't give a shit. Comply, mister. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah, o- obey, I'm... obey and yeah. comply or your, uh, or your dog shit. Yeah. That, that's one piece that I didn't really hear you talk about on, on the Sean Ryan show, but I'm going to guess that that, uh, that's pretty sour.
1: Yeah. Uh well I kind of have mixed feelings like for one I never expected the big organization of the government and of cans.com to just to to come running to my defense uh, it came down like for me I see the government waste money all over the place it's atrocious like it's <laughs> so what's a few million dollars to train a soldier they don't give a shit if it's someone that's you know, not complying. If all they want is compliance, I don't fit the puzzle piece anymore. For me, there was some there was some bitterness, we'll say, to a couple of individuals that I thought were better. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, like, the organization, I don't really care. I don't expect the big speeding train of JTF2 to come to a crashing halt when I get off. It doesn't matter. They've got shit to do. Whether yeah. the, the direction they're going is completely wrong, in my opinion, or not, there's still a high-speed train going in some direction. Um, for me, it was the the dudes, my friends, my brothers that I served with, and there's it's like the same people I still go to campfires with, and do you know what I mean, and call and message and do jiu and like it's all. So I didn't really care. The, the big organization train keep on going. I never really had this romanticized thought to just like, you know, they're going to have this big ceremony for me on the way out with, you know, what no parade, pop. no parade. <laughs> yeah. I didn't but, even get like but, a PWD did- or whatever, but it's the, the, my, my friends were still there. Now there was a, there was a line because of what was happening in Canada where it was a bit of a, a filter because some people that I really thought would be there completely Felt like they went insane, in my opinion. But like, they fell off, or just like, are huge supporters of this current government. Let's say, yeah. and then there's a lot of, uh, you know, hate towards what I'm doing, just talking about what I'm seeing, that doesn't necessarily always fit the narrative of, let's say, our current government. So it was a good filter. But like, my friends, uh, the people that I, I can count on. We're still there through it. So to me, the organization, I it, it it wasn't that big of a thing. I was kind of prepared for it. Typically, you know,
0: when somebody leaves a unit, there's a mug out. There's um, uh, the Junior Ranks Club or Sergeants Club or uh, yeah. the, the mess prepares a gift, you know, yeah. and uh, so you're given the gift and, and there's a mug out. Uh, and, you know, there's some pomp and ceremony, but because of uh, how you were given the the boot uh, was yeah. there. Was there even an unofficial version of that? Did some of the guys uh, get together and mug you out?
1: No. Well, we had uh, we had like my fiance just organized some of my friends to have a retirement cake. Yes, so there was an unofficial an unofficial party, and I have no shortage of parties, anyway. So. <laughs> Play
0: music now. So you uh, served a total of seventeen years. Is that about right?
1: Uh, just on it was like it ended up being about 16 and sixteen and a half years.
0: Yeah. Okay, so sixteen and change. And would would you have stayed in right to your because you needed to stay until twenty five to pension or twenty to pension when you do, when you got me? It would have been twenty five. Yeah, it was twenty yeah. when I when I served. So would yeah. you would you have done uh, your your full twenty five? Had you not give, been given the boot?
1: The way I always looked at it was if I'm enjoying it and I'm not every single second, cause there's always kind of a balance, right? There's sitting and waiting on your rucksack and then there's doing the fun stuff. So yeah. it, I was just always balancing to see if it was worth it for me. Cause the sacrifice is you were gone a lot, you know, for over a decade I was gone six to eight months every single year, which now there better be a big fucking purpose for me to be doing that. Uh, because you know time with my family and stuff. So I just always did that calculation. Do I still love it? Is it still worth it? If not, I'm out of here. So it was starting to for a long time I loved it enough that there was the sacrifice seemed like it was worth it. As it started to change with this this insane uh, government narrative being pushed down the chain of command and into our unit, I was like, okay, it's starting to not be a place that's maybe, for a guy like me. And then when all of this other stuff happened, I was like, okay, it's definitely not a place for me anymore. So I would have stayed longer. Um, I was, I was slated to go do a tour uh, on a place I'd never been and was excited about. And I was going to be the team lead. Um, but because I declined this certain shot, I was no longer allowed to. Um, so that the tour got taken away as like one of the, you know, the threats, like you're not going to go on tour. Like, all right. So, it just it became very quickly a place that wasn't for me. So I had never really said, like, I'm going to stay into 25 and do it. It was always just, if I love it, I'll stick around. And if I don't, I'm going to go do something.
0: Just watch and shoot.
1: Yeah, because the sacrifice part, it, yeah. was, it was pretty big. Like, you get asked a lot. Like, you need to be ready to leave at any moment's notice when you're, you're covered. To anywhere, like, so.
0: When you got out, did you give any consideration? Were you tempted to join a con, like? contractors military contractors like a blackwater uh, style thing
1: so when I left I knew I wanted to play music um, and I said I wasn't gonna do any tactical things really outside of just if I want to go hang out at a shooting range or spot for someone up in the mountains or whatever stuff I enjoyed um, but I was ugh, I was tempted with some pretty uh, lucrative <laughs> offers uh and we talked about with sarah and and i'm i like tier one operators are
0: rare man i mean uh, people don't know uh like for for our audience that doesn't know a tier one operator which jtf2 is the only equivalent please correct me if i'm wrong dallas uh, because you'll know way better than i will but as far as i know the only tier one uh, units that people might be familiar with is in the states is seal team six so not the rest of them. Everybody else is is tier two, but SEAL Team Six and Delta, and there's like one other, some tac something. But um, is that about right? Like there's tier one is rare. Is is SAS even tier one? I don't think they are.
1: Yeah, SAS is. They're a tier. So one. I think the defining factor, from what I've been told my whole career or been passed on, is that it's a hostage rescue mandate, but also um, like there's there's kind of a list of criteria, I guess. So like the SAS, yes. Delta and SEAL Team 6, yes. I believe there's a portion of the FBI HRT that is considered tier one. Um, And there's like um, the Australian and New Zealand SAS fit into that same thing in the Five Eyes community. Um,
0: So is tier one more about scope? of service uh, like scope of operation or is it about training level
1: well both because they fit together right okay. like if you're going to have this um this level of accountability let's say to a government then you need to have all the training that goes along with being able to answer that amount of calls sort of thing yeah
0: were, were there a lot of um and if you can't say, just say pass, don't worry. It, it, it's fine. But, um, I would imagine that JTF would have the regular long tours, six to nine months. Uh, but as well, short little two week ones that you probably can't talk about. Is that
1: a fair yeah, assumption? Yeah. So that's like counting tours. I'm like, well, the long ones are this many and there's always something happening where you'll go in and out quickly or here or there. Yeah. There's, It's it's a busy world.
0: It's a busy world. So let's talk about country music. Um, Actually, let's talk about the Sean Ryan show. How did that happen? How did you end up uh, getting on Sean Ryan? Because that's, for those that don't know, Sean Ryan is a uh, SEAL team guy and then a CIA contractor after that. And in a very short time, he's become the number two podcaster on the planet. Uh, He's number two on Spotify, which is spectacular. Only Joe Rogan is ahead of him. Like, it's just, first of all, he's a hell of a good interviewer, but he he did it right, right from the beginning. You know, everything's in person and everything's got a a kick-ass studio and and production quality. He did it right, right from day one. Uh, But how did you meet the guy? How did that come to be?
1: So when I got out, I started posting about my military experience and being in JTF2, um, talking about the long shot, um, kind of correcting the story that was put out also by the news, you know, when we made the shot. Um, and started chatting about it. And then he reached out on social media and just said, hey, maybe we should you know, have a conversation. And it was all part of because like, I'm, I'm in playing music now, and as I was getting into it, I was, I was having this conversation with the unit and my chain of command. I'm like, look, I'm getting out of the military. Even though there's a bunch of nonsense going on, there's, there's still some people in the chain of command that I respect, and I want the unit to be a good, effective fighting force because um, i got a lot of friends there still. So sure. I was like, look, I'm getting out. I'm going to be posting things on social media. I know there's a sour taste here with some people for that. Some people think we need more. Some people think that, I'm like, either way, if you give me someone to talk to, just like I will vet every single post I ever do through that person. If that person is a competent professional person that's going to respond in a timely manner, here's my post, here's what I'm going to write. Is there something JTF2 would rather have it say so that it's good for your image and good for mine? That got fucked off about ten times. Leading, I'm like, okay, I'm out in six months. I'm out in three months. I'm out in a week. No one's reached out. I'm gonna start post, and I was like, okay, look, I'm getting out. If you don't care, then just act like you don't care, and I'm fine. <laughs> with that. But if I'm gonna post things, and you're gonna start pretending that you care, there has been all this time that you could have done something. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, you're
0: trying you're, to do the right thing, and you're just being I ignored.
1: And it was, it was so crazy because as soon as I started posting, it fucking canceled off the unit. The government goes crazy. Chatted with a friend of mine who's fairly high up, and he's like, you would not believe the amount of time of day that is spent in conversation about what you're posting. <laughs> and I was like, I fucking told you. I will vet everything so that it's good for the unit. And it was just ignored. So that... I started putting things on social media, got some attention and then Sean uh, reached out and we were going to do, he wanted to have me on a show um, and it lined up. We ended up doing it a couple months earlier because I ended up going down to Nashville to do some writing for this album that I just made and he's just outside of Nashville. So I was like, Hey, I'm going to be down. Uh, you know, I think it was in January. Like if you want to do the episode, I'll, I'll be close to you. And he's like, let's do it. So we met up and he's just such a, Cool dude. Just like a, a humble, nice guy. And like you said, very professional setup and he, yeah. he's done everything right. Um, so it's it such a, such a pleasure. I think we chatted for like seven or eight hours that day with a couple little breaks, but oh, wow. it just uh, flew by and it was, it was such a cool experience.
0: I'm thrilled for his success. The stories that he brings uh, to light are, are so interesting, but important, yeah. you know, cause a lot of them are soldier stories and people don't know what we go through, you know, yeah. um, he never has regular infantry guys like me on, but uh, he has a lot of the, the high speed, low drag operators with just spectacular shows, uh, mm-hmm. or, 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 or stories and, um, having those unfiltered stories, it's just part of the, uh, of, of the history, you know, preserving yeah. that, that, that history of, of the work that we do.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And I was like humbled to definitely be in that, Studio with the company that he brings in there, um, and just hearing their careers and stories and stuff, and I was like, "Okay, I'll try and tell my story." It doesn't feel like it's the same, but uh, you're I a very this. you're
0: you're a super humble dude, Dallas. And actually, I've I've only met a few JTF operators, just a handful of them, um, and it's always the same. JTF guys are so humble. So humble, and I've been thinking a lot about that. I've been thinking about why is that, and I think my conclusion is: is because you got F all to prove, you know, like, yeah, maybe. like it, it's know. the it's the pinnacle of the of the CF. So I mean, well, what, I what more is there?
1: Yeah, it's true, but I also think it's just like there's, you know, you you get to you get into the unit, let's say, and then you're like oh, okay, it's tough to get here, yes. But it's, like, it's not superheroes everywhere. Do you know what I mean? It's just normal guys that just maybe are a little more stubborn from quitting, you know, yeah. in, in some of those courses. Um, and I think maybe that's what it is. Instead of, like, yeah, you know, we're not some fucking superstars. Like, we work hard and just maybe we're a little dumber than everyone because <laughs> we didn't quit in places. But, like, it's just, it's very... It's very normal like not normal guys. Like if you would see a group, it's like, okay, it's a team of hockey players or something because 'cause they're all big and have beards or whatever. But like Well, yeah, you're a
0: big bunch. Like you're you're no small dude. man. You're what, about six four?
1: Yeah, just over six four. Definitely not super yeah. small.
0: And Devin Larrett is six five and a freaking – Ape. He's a monster. He's a monster. Yeah. Yeah. He's a monster. Uh, Any guys like my size there, like five nine guys? I don't think
1: so. Oh yeah. The whole spectrum. Like there's there's all kinds of people, and it's just it's very. I don't know. it's, It's nothing crazy. Well, again, it's it's hard to get in, and and the work we do is hard, and we just train at specific things, so we get good at specific things. But it's like I said, there's no like superheroes except for maybe devin
0: (laughs) (laughs) well i think uh uh, devin is superhero even when he was younger looked like superman you know he he definitely had the thing going on but he was the most physically fit person in the canadian forces at one point like he won that accolade does not
1: surprise me
0: did, did he stick out um like even among the jtf operators did devin stick out as something a little extra special
1: oh for sure Absolutely. He's a monster. Like we, we would go train places. Um, I only deployed with him briefly. Um, but he would just like, I mean, arm wrestling was obviously his domain, but he would just arm wrestle like everyone in a squadron.
0: So for, for the, for the audience that doesn't know, I'm an arm wrestler, I'm a competitive arm wrestler. So Devin's like a God in the arm (laughs) wrestling community. And, uh, Devin is, is the current heavyweight champion of the world. And, uh, next Saturday, he might be the number one super heavyweight champion of the world as well. And is hailed as one of the most, um, prolific arm wrestlers of all time. He'll never call himself the goat, but he's damn near the goat. Uh, John Brzezink is the goat, but, um, uh, and always will be, but Devin is like top three that has ever drawn breath. He is absolutely unbelievable, um, as arm wrestling. And whenever he talks about the military, even though he's a JTF operator, um, he's very oh, that's just my old job. Or when I was in the military. Like uh or maybe he'll say special forces, but he never um he never swings his dick around when he's talking about his military career. He's very, very mm-hmm. humble about it.
1: Yeah. And he was like I was saying, he's a monster, just like he would arm wrestle everyone. I remember trained, trained with him. It was like probably like arm wrestling a small child for him, but we would <laughs> arm wrestle and I was like, he's like, okay, good, good. And then the next guy would come. I like the next day I woke up and my arms were fucked. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> both arms. I like, I'm like, I have to train today. What did you do to me? <laughs> uh, yeah, he is. He's a, he's a machine, that guy.
0: Yeah, he's a machine. Super nice fella. Uh yeah The only time I've ever been star starstruck, I felt like a, a babbled babbling idiot when I when I met him. Like I couldn't even speak like ah you're so big yeah. <laughs> But uh very kind, very gracious uh fella for sure. Giant hands, really oh, yeah. big hands. So um being on the Sean Ryan show, did you see a noticeable boost to your country music? attention.
1: Oh yeah. Huge. Especially because he's in Tennessee. Uh, it was, it was amazing. I'm super grateful for him having me on the show. Um, but then, you know, he connected me with so many people and he's just, he's, yeah, he's such a good dude. And every time I go down and awesome. you know, we try and link up and it's he He was just gracious with, you know, his, his connections in Nashville and it, it, it yeah, it made a, made a, it gave me like some, a big boost for sure.
0: Yeah. He's a, he seems like a, a genuinely decent human being. Yeah, he is. So how'd you hook up with Gord Bamford? That's a hell of a thing. Like a guy just starting out his music career and boom, you're touring, touring with Gord Bamford. That's a, yeah, that's
1: awesome. Yeah. It was, uh, a, a friend of mine brought me, it was actually the day I retired, uh, a buddy of mine brought me to a Gord Bamford show and he, he knew him. And so we ended up, uh, backstage afterwards. It was in Edmonton at Cook County Saloon and, okay. uh, we were chatting and stuff and we, I ended up playing guitar with one of his friends for like, uh, it was five in the morning or something back there. Um, and we, I only chatted with Gord a little bit that night. And then a couple weeks later I just woke up to a, a message and he's like, Hey Dallas, it's Gord Bamford. Uh, can you send me some of your songs? So I sent him the songs I had out. It was just a live album from a bar show I did. And he really, uh, he liked my songwriting. And he said, you know, if you, I'm going to be in Toronto in, in a month. If you want to come meet up, I think I could help you with your music. So I went down and we met up. And it's just kind of since there, they've been helping me a lot. And I'm going to go on tour with him this fall, which is very, uh, it's very exciting.
0: Super exciting! Well, I'll try to jump in uh, when you're in Alberta with the tour. I'll be jumping. I'll yeah. be. I'll be sending emails like, "Hey Dallas, can I get a backstage pass?"
1: There you go. Hook yeah, me up, brother. Be- Hook me up. The last two shows are Calgary and Edmonton, which I'm really excited for because the last shows in Edmonton. I, I haven't even played in Edmonton yet. I was born in Edmonton. It's where I went to, you know, join which Calgary. hospital? Uh, the Royal Alec, Royal Alec. Me too
0: yeah just a long time before
1: <laughs> so i'm i'm excited to have a finally a show there and it be a like show this level will be, be super special
0: well i can't wait brother and uh, I'll, I'll certainly be there to support you when i see you coming through i'll be buying tickets and i'll be like dallas
1: get me a pass for the backstage yeah we'll do a, show off a, to my whatever. wife <laughs> all right deal
0: <laughs> all right brother um, thanks for joining me today, man. We're, we're at about an hour. I want to respect your time, and uh, really means a lot. The, the mission of this show, Sean, um, <laughs> Dallas, is uh, to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. So I do that by having uh, mental health experts on from all over the world, both the different modalities, everything from psychedelics, which we didn't have time to talk about today, um, everything I can find. And I get those experts on the show and we talk about it. So when I have somebody with um, a fairly high profile on, that helps because it helps new eyeballs come to the show and your presence here today, I can promise you is helping to save lives because you're expanding my audience. So thank you so much for doing that Dallas.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. I think it's super important. This type of, of work, I did a post not to take too much longer, but a, about this and how important it is to kind of change the the narrative or the mindset around a soldier training, and like it's almost like you train really hard, you work really hard, you deploy, you do all these things, and then on the tail end, it's like it, there's attention isn't put to the same level on the tail end. It's like, okay, now what do we do? Uh, Here's some medication. Here's some stuff. Have a good life. If we can help, we'll do this. Really, you know, to get any real help takes forever and there's a bunch of nonsense. But I think the conversation needs to be and and starting early and hopefully it can help people now that are having challenges is this like, this piece on the tail end is as important as the front end work.
0: And during, and and during, Um, I mean, when, during my tour, uh, so Croatia in 94, smack dab in the middle of the genocide. It was only a year after me Pocket, Um And because of everything that happened, and it's, it's funny, people, well, I was on that tour. I thought it was kind of uneventful. 2,000 people were there there's 2000 different experiences. Like you didn't yeah. have my tour, man. You didn't yeah. have my section commander and you didn't go and do what I went and did. So, and you're not me. So even if you were my fire team partner for six months, it's a different tour because I'm a different person.
1: Yeah.
0: So you can't judge what somebody else has uh, experienced or went through. But um, part of the work of this show is to try to bring awareness when you are on tour. When things start to change, or you, or your behavior starts to change, to be able to spot it early on and go, oh wait a second, that looks a whole lot like a symptom. And let let's keep well, an let's keep an eye on that and deal with it in real time as it's happening. I went twenty three years without diagnosis, and I'm hoping that the military gets better at that so they can deal with it in situ in real time.
1: Yeah, well, and I think part of it is that mindset. Like I talked to. I don't know if you know Kelsey, Sharon, Brass yep, and Unity. Sure do. We yeah. about this. And I was saying on my deployments, like I was meditating every morning and every night. I was journaling. There's all these things you can do that help. Obviously, physical fitness and what you put in your body It's a big picture. But I was, I was like I had focus on processing things and putting work into it as much as I was you know my pistol draw time, or like my long range shooting, and all these other things. You know,
0: was that that was self directed, though, right, Dallas? Like
1: that's right. It was self directed, and, and that in, like, and that's
0: the problem. Like like if it, we learn first aid, combat first aid, we know how to put an IV into each other, but yeah. but we're not taught how to um, spot shifts in mood and demeanor, yeah. and what that means and how to
1: deal well, with within it. your peers and yourself. Do you know, exactly. know what I mean? Like it's, and it's almost, and I, I, again, like you said, I can't speak for everyone's experience, but you're, for me, I was in a group of people that were extremely aggressive like for our job. <laughs> I was I in need. the old
0: third, man. I know. I, I, I yeah. get it.
1: I get so it. It's like, there's a balance because you do need to be ferocious and aggressive mm-hmm. when it's time to go do your job, but you need to be able to, like, I always say like, calmly sit and enjoy your dinner with your family at the end. So like, it's a big picture thing that we don't really talk about. And actually I always struggle with like, what's, how do I put out, what are the words I use to put out this message? You know what I mean? That like the institution, the mindset, the training, all to change, but the individual also has to, to know and learn that that work doesn't stop when you get out. You don't float by high every single day on prescriptions or weed and it gets sorted out. Like when you did work to get to the level that you got, whatever that was, it takes that much work now to get to a place of peace later. Um, so actually Kelsey from Boston Union and I are, we're going to do, we're figuring out the timelines either maybe every couple weeks or once a month or every week for a little while, like a weighted vest walk thing that's live stream for both of us to talk about this, to, to try and help people you know, whether it's tools strategies or just change the mindset around it a little bit. Um, and then that hopefully that, you know, all of these things like the stuff you're doing can tie in and like, cause I think psychedelics and treatments, there's a bunch of things that are extremely valuable and that's all part of that work piece that needs to go into, you know, just being able to be calm in your own mind most of the time.
0: <laughs> yeah, Kelsey Sharon's doing good work. Um, yeah. uh, she's, really done well at uh, promoting brass and unity and getting the word out there. And it's important, you know, it, it's yeah. important because it gets rid of the stigma. That's how you get rid of stigma by saying shit yeah. out loud and, and not being meek and mild about it. It's like, look, got PTSD. This is what it looks like. I'm a fucking train wreck. And, uh, but, but I'm better now. And, well,
1: yeah, and you can still put working, like you still, it's yeah. still your responsibility to put work in. Have even to. if you're a train work some days, even if you have bad days, just trying to have one more better day a week, a year, a month. You know, it's like those little steps. And it's, it's how you get good at anything. And that's how you get good, in my opinion, at getting through these challenging things that have happened in people's lives.
0: Yeah. And the more we can speak about it openly, without any shame, without any reservation, just, you know, matter of fact, like we're talking about picking up the groceries, um, the more we can do that, the more other people are empowered. It's called lending courage. You know, when you have the courage and the comfort to, to speak about these things, um, other people go, Oh, okay. That doesn't sound so bad. Yeah. You know, I can, I can, I can talk about that. I can raise my hand too. Hey, I can go to therapy too. Hey, I can uh, say, yeah. yeah, or at least have a checkup from the neck up and, and, <laughs> and uh, do an inventory here and, and, and see how I'm doing. Totally. But uh, I think the best part of our conversation today has been the last eight minutes here.
1: I think it's at least the most valuable. The rest of it, if I was listening, I'm like, mm, boring.
0: <laughs> well, for you, maybe I think the rest of the world is like, Ooh, and geeking out about it. All right, brother. We'll stay on the line. Thanks for being here. Man.
1: Thanks for having me. All
0: right. Stay on the line. You're listening to operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders and their families hey everybody it's operation tango romeo the place where healing happens if you'd like to support this show remember like comment subscribe and share share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring